Fresh New Shorts offers you new short stories from award-winning authors. Today's story is by Barbara Black, who won the Writers' Union of Canada Short Fiction Prize in 2017. She's also won and been shortlisted for numerous other writing awards, including the McClelland and Stewart Journey Prize, Commonwealth Short Story Prize, and the National Magazine Award. You can learn more at barbablack.ca. This episode features Barbara Black's Writers' Union of Canada 2017 winner, Mastering Surface Tension. An ordinary day and an ordinary chore end up being anything but. An accident, a coma, and a childhood fascination with insects create an odd but oddly satisfying world for Bert, who is more adept as a bug walking on water than as a husband mowing the lawn. Mastering Surface Tension by Barbara Black Bert always wanted a cigarette, right when something interesting was happening, like he could only accommodate change on his own terms. It irritated the hell out of Grace. Look, forked lightning, she'd say. And then, instead of looking, he'd reach for his cigs, pop one out, light it, then look. One June day, Bert climbed the ladder leading to the roof of the house. He had done it many times, thanks to the exhortations of his loving wife to, for God's sake, do something about the cracked window pane, the Christmas lights, the leak, the loose shingle. Usually the supposed defect was a figment of her imagination, which saw decrepitude and disaster lurking in everything. In this case, it was a football-sized hornet nest hanging from the corner of the roof. He lined up the ladder underneath it and climbed to take a look. He liked to at least give the appearance he had done an inspection. The nest appeared inactive. He lit up a cigarette at the top of the ladder and took the opportunity to look into his neighbor's yards. There was Mr. Gorman, whose first name and profession were a mystery to Bert, and whose yard was soulless perfection. Manicured lawn, tightly clipped box hedge, expensive lounges arranged at right angles. It looked like a high-end miniature train set. All it needed was people. But Gorman never entertained anyone in his backyard. He only controlled its growth and staged its possibilities. On the other side was the permasmile guy, Ed Thompson, who whistled in his garden, mostly vegetables, and was perennially cheerful, as if every day were a pleasant and welcome surprise. His yard was populated with water features, Buddha statues, tiki lights, and grandchildren. In the summer, his barbecue went non-stop, its primordial charred meat fumes billowing into Bert's domain. Bert was neither precise nor freeform. He was the common man between these two extremes. You're a good man, Bert, a regular good man, his wife always told him. And his yard was just a plain rectangle of grass. Bert watched Gorman mowing his impeccable lawn, back and forth, back and forth, first in double-wide stripes, then diagonally, in a diamond pattern. It looked like something Bert would never achieve in his life. 
He sucked on his cigarette and exhaled a stream of smoke in the direction of the hornet nest. In the other yard, Ed was picking his tomatoes in that luxuriating Buddha way of his, admiring each red globe as a miracle of nature, when his cell phone rang. Oddly, at the same time, Bert heard his wife's voice coming from the kitchen. Oh, I was up to my neck in blackberries, pie, jam, you name it. When she laughed, Ed laughed too. Bert thought it must have been a weird coincidence. He moved up to the ladder's platform with a label that said, Not a step, trying to spot his wife through the narrow window. His head was now six inches from the nest. A sentry popped out of the entrance, its helmet-like black-and-white head swiveling to face Bert. It sent out the alarm. The last thing Bert remembered was lying on his back on the sidewalk and seeing a squadron of bald-faced hornets dive-bombing his forehead. Since then, Bert had been in a so-called vegetative state. By all appearances, he was inert, confined to a stark white hospital room on the fifth floor of St. Francis of Assisi Medical Center. But, in fact, due to a neural short circuit in his visual cortex, he was now an insect who roamed a microscopic world of his own creation, a landscape that sometimes resembled a magnified stucco wall or a dried warped orange peel. Technically, he didn't operate as a human self anymore. But on the other hand, he was free from the constraints of the material world. Nobody knew of Bert's interior state of being, and had they known, they wouldn't have understood how it came about. Maybe the part of his brain that stored the intense glut of entomological knowledge from seventh grade had suddenly been made accessible. That year, he spent so much time alone crawling around the forest floor and peering into dirt holes with a magnifying glass that his parents had feared for his sanity. But what he had found in his engagement with the world of earwigs, termites, weevils, and stoneflies, cocoons, wasp nests, galls, and molts was, above all, kinship. Much of our world is constructed by our brain. Bert's had simply taken it to a whole new level. Each day as he lay in the hospital bed, a portal to a new world presented itself. Not always pleasant. He didn't think in terms of days anymore. Instead, he operated in intervals. As hospital visitors sat by him downcast, Bert scuttled through the intervals, knee joints clicking, antennae quivering at odor molecules passing meal carts, eyes at ground level in his world, which he thought of as domain. At first, it simply unfolded itself before him, like an opium vision. Later, he could actively create the topography and adjust his attire. If he felt he needed new body parts, he switched them in. Sculpted elytra, armor, barbed tarsi, and ovipositor. His gender was flexible. 
Did he feel himself to be a human-sized arthropod or an actual-sized one? What did it matter? Only the law of dreams applied. Driven by guilt and loneliness, Grace visited Bert regularly. The hospital, with all its modern angled glass, made her feel as if she was trapped inside a giant ice crystal. The large room skewed perspective, making Bert look even smaller. From her purse, she took out his old black plastic comb and ran it through the limp strands on his head. Oh, and Todd insists on staying with me. He's already cleaned out the liquor cabinet. They were saying on TV that the Arctic's melting. Her church friend, Johanna, said global warming was natural, but Grace swore the ocean at the bottom of their street was breaching the high tide mark already, and it worried her. Do you think we should move, Bert? The ventilator inhaled as if about to answer. Todd, their bachelor son, traded hospital shifts with his mother. Transferring his bulk to the undersized chair, he would sit like a giant in kindergarten and read aloud from Bert's favorite book, How Stuff Works. Water has a higher surface tension than most other liquids. The tines of the baler intake pick up hay, feeding it into the rollers. Whether Bert heard him, Todd didn't know, but he felt needed. He wondered why his father had never read to him when he was a kid. Bert did hear him. In fact, Todd's reading fueled Bert's excursions into domain, and Bert's visions became more detailed, more intense. They had a physiological dimension, too. Regions of his motor cortex and parahippocampal gyrus often flickered like distant lanterns, so distant that no one in the room ever detected them. Thinking, however, remained excruciatingly slow. It could take him two or three days to assemble his body, but his incarnations were not guaranteed successes. Mayfly, for example, did not go well. He couldn't figure out how to operate his hind wings and kept crashing into the lake. Waterstrider, however, was an interval he revisited several times, reveling in the ideal geometry of his thread-thin legs and the feather-like tiptoe sensation of mastering surface tension. More recently, he was learning to detect the pressure waves of objects in his spatial field, a special skill of the much-detested German cockroach. Outwardly, his face and body betrayed nothing of these experiments. At first, people came with their cheery voices and upbeat news, Ed Thompson among them. They crinkled candy wrappers and waved things over his face as if he was a scanner. Gradually, the visits lessened to a smaller circle of friends and family. Pressure waves. Visitors again. His neighbors, the Kilshaws, and their two young boys. He's moving! No, he's not. Yes, he is, just a bit. His temples are twitching. I don't see it. You missed it. They were. Meantime, Bert, 
during his sojourn as a dung beetle, had invented a machine for rolling dung, thereby revolutionizing life for the superfamily Scarabioidea. He had sensed it was time to ratchet up his invertebrate existence. Summer unraveled. Grace and Todd dragged the patio chairs back to the shed. Bert's dormant rectangle of grass was revived by the autumn rains. Todd knocked down the old hornet nest with a broomstick, like hitting a human head piñata. It disintegrated into small ash-like flakes. As far as his daughter Lisa was concerned, Bert was as good as dead. She never visited him. She continued tap-tapping out client reports, as she always did, in her tiny paper-strewn office at WorkSafe. Her imagination was as feeble as Bert's had been before the accident. Todd sat on his parents' couch, drinking the remainder of his dad's Johnny Walker Red, watching the home movie labeled Shawnigan Lake, 1974. Bert flickered briefly on screen, waving a blackened pork chop from the barbecue, the lake glistening in the background. Todd had grown closer to Bert since his father had been in the coma, or experiencing minimal consciousness, as the ICU doctor put it, as if describing a worm. Now Todd spent his days reimagining his childhood as a golden age of father-son ball games, model-making, and fishing expeditions. The phone rang. Mom, phone's ringing. He rewound to the fishing sequence again, so that, in reverse, Bert appeared to lower the cutthroat tail first through a perfect ring of water and seamlessly guide it back into the depths of the lake. As the answering machine clicked on, Todd shouted, still fixed on the TV, Someone named Joanne! Grace flew down the stairs and lifted the receiver. Two weeks after Bert's accident, Grace started attending the first memorial church of faith, which Johanna had suggested the day she had touched Grace's hand so sympathetically and recommended that Grace read the book of Job. Grace found its endless litany of disaster horrifying, but was too polite to say so. Now when she visited Bert, she keened prayers over him with evangelical fervor. Oh Lord, fill this man with your divine spirit. Raise him up to life to see once again the glory of creation. In the past... The closest she ever got to religion was when she and Bert first met in 1960 and made out in St. Luke's churchyard, knocking over a small stone cross, which they hauled off as a souvenir, Grace shouting to the moon, Forgive me, Mr. Jesus! The cross still stands crookedly in the shade garden of their backyard, guarding the grave of their first dog, Ripley. She was beginning to think, that what made you a certain kind of person depended largely on what kind of person the other person in your life thought you were. More intervals passed. Without ongoing cues about his body, Bert's conception of himself as human began to waver. 
as grace grew weary of her inert husband he was enjoying the glory of his own creation mating paraphernalia and positions occupied him for hours and hours the ideal spermatophore transfer method or if he preferred to be in a higher order length of the endophallus tarsi to grip the smooth backs of females grasping position etc way back while his schoolmates were ogling playboy centerfolds bert the twelve-year-old was diving into the mechanics of invertebrate copulation which were to him more erotic than the mechanics of human coitus grace came he felt the pressure wave and maybe another thicker density beside her he wasn't sure she dragged the chair closer making the rubber ends on the chair legs squeal causing his landscape to temporarily collapse bert i've met someone at church he had no idea how many intervals it had been since his fall i thought i should tell you if he'd been able to light up a cigarette he would have if he'd been able to smile he would have instead he spread his wings wide to listen i just want you to know how much i still love you she said parting his hair with the black comb even though her voice trailed off she knew you could never really replace one love with another you could only displace the original push it to the back of the drawer where the old lingerie languishes she stared at bert distressed that he looked so otherworldly like an alien version of himself as that long ago twelve-year-old bert imagined that the woman he would fall in love with would be as dainty as the green lacewing his favorite nocturnal insect chrysopa golden eyes he had imagined the vibrations of his mating song traveling from his body down into the ground upon which she would stand before him grace continued to pour forth reasons for abandoning him but her voice started to feel prickly different than it was in the past like tiny barbs puncturing his abdomen the longer she spoke the less he could understand her words became sound wave shapes percussive vocalizations swirling moans like a floor polisher making its way down a long narrowing hallway todd and lisa and i will all be here with you in the room she whispered a fervent prayer patted his hand and left bert snapped his wings back smartly groomed his antennae and re-entered domain on the other side of the white hills no he had changed them to ochre now his new mate was waiting thanks for listening to fresh new shorts if you enjoyed today's story please comment and rate us five stars wherever you listen to your podcasts you can learn more about the author barbara black at barbarablack.ca 
subscribe to our podcast, and come back again.